Hey everyone, it's Matt Fox here from Free Associations. We've got a really good show coming up for you uh, in which we are looking at a, a study around the uh, impact of, of male circumcision and, and HIV treatment on HIV incidents in Uganda. Uh, before we get into the show, uh, when listening to it over, uh, there are a few corrections that I wanted to make uh, before we get into it. Um, so first one is that uh, you'll hear in the in the uh, audio that uh, Don is sort of describing the the background of of, of HIV uh, prevention efforts in in around the world really and he you'll hear him say um, that condoms are so so and I just wanted to, to be extra clear that when what he means by that is our ability to get people to use condoms is so so condoms are incredibly effective at preventing HIV um, also, um, there is uh, a point at which you'll hear Chris refer to um, uh, a hypothetical scenario in which uh, circumcised men are uninfectable, and you'll hear sort of me vaguely in the background uh, trying to say less infectable because, of course, circumcision has been shown to reduce the incidence of, of transmission to men. It hasn't. Uh, it doesn't protect completely against it. Um, the the bigger one I wanted to get to is is an issue that uh, a correction that I um, will you hear me say several times in the in the podcast. I refer to the analysis of the study as as ecologic or sort of a hybrid of a of a patient level and ecologic analysis. And the more I thought about that, I realized that's not really accurate. So it isn't an ecologic study. It's a it's a cohort study uh, just using an ecologic. Uh, or using a population level variable as one of the predictors. So I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, and lastly, uh, in our second segment, you'll hear that we talk about uh, the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. And I, I just coincidentally, uh, there was a, a tweet from Miguel Hernan that went out that uh, actually addressed the, the usefulness of the distinction between efficacy and effectiveness just yesterday or the day before. Uh, and so I just wanted to point readers to that because it's a really interesting discussion. Go and find Miguel's uh, uh, Twitter page and you'll, you'll find that. Uh, so that's all. And now on to the show. Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who's questioning that big new medical breakthrough. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here in the studio with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health, and we are, as always, in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org. That's www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And as a reminder, we cannot beg you enough to uh, go on and hit that, uh, that, that rating button on your uh, podcast app or to go onto the website and, uh, and link to... Uh, Give us a give us a review. Let people know what you think about the podcast. That is how people are going to find us. Unless you really hate us, and oh, that case, we're encouraging. No, no, I want to hear about them too. Well, I want to hear from maybe, them. Maybe so. If you hate us, then send a, a direct message to Don. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> you give us a review. So now, can we give him his phone number? Uh, I would no, rather. I would rather we we left that off because uh, it might happen to me at some point. All right. So today in our first segment, our journal club segment, we are going to get into a study that uh, looks at whether or not using multiple means to prevent HIV infection uh, is actually effective at reducing the overall 
infection rate. Uh, in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we will get into the difference between efficacy and effectiveness studies. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing, we will get into some new, some research that you probably haven't heard about, or Chris will define a new Latin phrase for us. <laughs> So let's get into it. In our, our first segment, we are going to get into a paper from a group that's been working in Uganda for a long time. Uh, and the paper looks at whether or not combination HIV prevention, which is a big thing now in the HIV world, uh, has been effective at reducing HIV incidence. The article was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It is entitled HIV Prevention Efforts and Incidence of HIV in Uganda with lead author M.K. Grabowski from John Hopkins School of Public Health. Uh, we should note that this one is a little bit in our wheelhouse and that uh, all three of us do some work uh, on HIV. And so we know a little bit more uh, about this one than some of the others. Um, so we can talk semi-authoritatively about semi -authoritatively. this as opposed to everything else we've talked about. Instead of completely making stuff up. Yep. Uh, as always, let me give you uh, some of the headlines. Uh, so the Independent says, Rakai HIV study shows remarkable drop in infections. Uh, Global Health Now says prevention pays off in Rakai. And the United Press International says U.S.-funded HIV prevention effort reaps rewards in Uganda. A little bit uh, specific on that one. So, Don... Uh, let me start with you. Can you can you tell us what what they did in this study and what they found? Sure. Um, Want to give a little bit a little bit of background about um, uh, about the the treatments that they provided in the study. Um, we've made incredible progress in combating HIV, and we have developed really amazing tools um, that are really the subject of this particular study. And we've also learned that some interventions aren't quite as good and the tools aren't quite as effective. For instance, the uh, whole issue of abstinence has been a complete and utter failure both in outside the United States and, and essentially within the United States. And but, I will say, I kind of feel like we should have known that one wasn't going to yeah, work. Yeah, I think that was a little politically motivated. Mm. Condoms are sort of so-so, and other behavioral interventions are not so, so great. But um, what we now have are drugs that are incredibly effective and much easier to take and much cheaper to take than they were in the past. And so those antiretroviral drugs um, are so effective at decreasing the amount of virus floating around in the body that they, in fact, have been shown to um, affect an affect an infected person's ability to transmit the virus. So if you are taking your medicines as you're supposed to, um, you have almost no virus floating around in your system, and therefore you really almost can't infect somebody else. But the caveat is that you have to be adherent and, and the medicines have to be appropriate and they, um, they, for and you your infection. not resistant and to they the have medications. To be, right. And they have, well, if they're resistant to the medications, then then you would have a lot of virus floating around in your system. Yep. And this was established in a landmark um, study, 052, um, HPTN 052, where they followed um, a bunch of discordant couples in many centers throughout Meaning the world. One, one, one partner has HIV, one does not. Correct, correct. Um, and they continued to have sex, and they were advised to have, use condoms when they, when they had sex. And... Um, of the 1,700 couples that they followed for, I forget how long it was, two years, something like that, yep. they identified that there were 28 transmissions that occurred between the couples, and um, they identified that the virus actually came from the partner because they did a genomic analysis. Mm. And so they, they called them linked transmissions. 
Um, and apparently only one of those link transmissions came from somebody who, um, suppo- who was infected, part of the couple, and was on, on medication. So mm-hmm. it was essentially a 75 to 90% reduction in transmission. And do we, do we know if an individual was non-adherent or had uh, resistance? I don't, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Just I, we may. I just ha- I, I mm-hmm. haven't read that article recently. Um, the other modality that we have is male circumcision. And we've known that for some time through observational studies. And there were a, a series of studies that were randomized controlled trials, um, which had to be two, two of them had to be finished early because the male circumcision was so effective in interrupting male to female transmission um, that it was unethical to... No, control. no, no. Backwards. Backwards. Female right. to male. That back. No, that's right. right. Sorry. Male to female. Sorry. No, F- female, to male. Female, female to male. Female to male. Right. right. Men who were circumcised were far were 50% less likely Correct. to Correct. contract HIV. That's right. right. That's right. Um, that they had to stop it early and then that became sort of the standard of care. So what this study is trying to do is trying to um, look over time at a very well-researched community, 30 communities actually in in Uganda, um, as these interventions were introduced into the population. And um, what they did is they then followed... they followed the infection rate among a cohort of HIV uninfected individuals um, and uh, counted the number of new infections. Um, so the Rakai Community Cohort Study has been around for 12 years. Um, and every year, what they do is they, every year, year and a half, they go around to these, these 30 communities within Rakai and they, um, they, I, they enroll new patients or new subjects, um, or they follow su- subjects that have been enrolled, enrolled relatively recently. And so they have sort of these observations of events that occur over time. Um, and they knew when male circumcision was introduced into these communities, and they knew when ART was introduced into, the, into these communities. HIV treatment? HIV treatment. Yep. Um, and so they could, they could ask the question, is there a population-based correlation between the introduction of these modalities, these treatments, um, over time and a decrease in the transmission rate or incidence of new infections um, over time. So what they did is they, they took all the information, that, all, all of the, the data that they had collected starting in 1999 to 2004 when male circumcision and antiretrovirals were introduced, used that as the baseline, and then started to assess the um, incidence of new infections um, from 2004 to 2012. And of the 33,000 participants that are regularly followed in the the community cohort study, they identified 17,000 HIV negatives. And those were the ones that they followed over time. And that comprised, I think, 94,000 person years of observation. Um, They uh, followed these people, and in, in essence, they, they made a number of observations. One was sex behaviors, and they showed that sex behaviors, um, initiating sex or not initiating not sex. Initiating. Delaying yep. the onset of Delaying the onset of sex. sexual debut, I think is what we call it, yep. increased over time. So the public health messages were getting to these communities. So between 2004 and 2012, there were fewer initiations of sex, sexual debut in the younger participants. Um, Can I interrupt you just for a second? Sure. Can you say why 2004 is so important? Well, that was really the start of um, PEPFAR, um, or the start of, of the PEPFAR initiative in this particular part of Which Uganda. Is when Which all, is all the drugs started to... to Pe- right. PEPFAR was PEPFAR, George Bush's... Uh, President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. Is when large-scale access to public sector HIV treatment right. happened in much of, of sub-Saharan Africa and uh, around the world, really. Right. 
Right. Um, in terms of the other sex behavior changes over time, um, the, the number of multiple sex, sexual partners really didn't increase or decrease over time. And condom use pretty much was the same during this, this, obser- this period of observation. Um, so in 2000 and s- before 2006, there was no antiretrovirals available. Um, in 2006, uh, 12% of the participants were taking antiretrovirals. And by the end of the observation period, the intervention observation period, 69% of people were taking um, antiretrovirals. Um, the amount of viral suppression um, was at 40% in 2009, three years after people started taking antiretrovirals, and, and increased pretty remarkably yeah, to really 75% impressive. viral suppression amongst all of the participants followed in this, in this cohort in 2016. And male circumcision rates also increased really dramatically. So in, in 1999, 15% of the population of men had been circumcised. Um, that increased to twenty to twenty percent in two thousand and six, and sixty percent of the men who were participating in the study in two thousand and sixteen had been circumcised. And the bottom line is, when they looked at HIV incidence, they sh- they showed that it was essentially stable up until about two thousand and five or six, and between the period when the intervention commenced to the end of this observation period, 2016, there was a 42% decline in HIV incidence. And it was greater, greater, this decline was greater among men than it was in women. It's, I mean, it's, it's a really striking change over time that you're, you're observing. Um, I did want to make one, one more comment before, uh, before we get into the details. Um, that that's seventy. Would you say seventy five percent virally suppressed number? Right, is a really impressive number. Really impressive. Uh, UN the UNAIDS targets for countries is they they have this uh, 90-90-90 targets, which say that we want to get ninety percent of those who are infected to know they're infected. Of those, ninety percent onto HIV treatment, and of those, ninety percent virally suppressed. So you multiply ninety ninety nine ninety, you get seventy two percent. 72% is the target, and that is what the world is trying to reach. Under the theory that if we get to that number, the infection rate should start to drop. I, I don't think that that necessarily gets us to the elimination phase, but but infection rates should start to drop. Um, and so this is this is an incredible uh, uh, feat that they've actually gotten to. Most places in the world, at least places that, that we're working, haven't gotten to that number. Botswana seems to have gotten there possibly um, uh, Swaziland. But, but uh, I think it's important, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the second sec- segment, um, it's probably more achievable in this setting because this community of people have, has been study, being studied for yep. 12 years now. So yep. they've gotten the message over and over and over again. Yep. So, so Chris, talk to us about your, uh, your thoughts on this study. You think it's, uh, do you think that they have really demonstrated that this is uh, the result of combination HIV prevention, so an increase in male circumcision rates and an increase in viral suppression amongst those with HIV that's led to this incidence drop, or uh, are you not convinced? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded that, that, um, that they did. Um, even though it's an observational study. Even though this, I guess, and I guess we would probably call this an ecological study, right? Because we're not, we're not looking at individuals. We're going to have to come back to that. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. I, I think we sort of are and we sort of aren't here. Because uh, there are elements where it's an individual study because they're following non-infected uh, individuals over time. But then they're not looking at those individuals to see of those individuals who they followed, how many of them were, you know, circumcised, how many of them were. Well, they, they actually are in some of their analytics. It's, I, Let's come back to it. 
it's, 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 it's a little difficult. It's one of the problems I actually had with this study. But, you know, in, in a way, the, the study comes down to sort of three sequential questions. One is, you know, assuming that the interventions, um, you know, are effic- efficacious. And we, we can say that, you know, if condoms are used, they are a great way of preventing HIV. But the problem is that they're, they're often not used. And, and Don alluded to that earlier, that, that the weakest point of this was that their ability to, to change sexual behaviors to a lower risk profile was relatively poor, um, with the exception of delaying onset of sex. Relatively poor. And, and even, the, even when you get to delaying onset of sex, I mean, hard for me to know what that really means, given that the message of what you're supposed to be doing has been going on to these communities for 15, 20 years. People know what they're supposed to say, and right. so is is this this increase in debut of onset real? But, I, uh, but, but the other two things maybe, that, that are part of the intervention are are, are 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 categorical, which is are if you are HIV, are you taking ARVs, and if you're taking ARVs, uh, you know, are you are you undetectable? That's and we part can measure two, that, and we can measure that. Yep. So it's not a matter of opinion or or self reporting bias. And the third is is circumcision rates, and and that also is not really susceptible to many biases. It's well, that was self report. They did not do an examination. And we, and of we, I guess they didn't check, but I, I, I would uh, assume that people are. I disagree. You think that people are, no, are fact, misreporting their their circumcision status? No, in fact, I use this as a, a teaching example all the time. If you look at the studies that looked at the relationship between <laughs> that is Chris slurping down some lovely tea, by the way. It's very hot. Uh, I just want to make sure people know that's not me. Uh, if you look <laughs> at the, if you look at the studies of uh, circumcision as and whether or not it prevents acquisition of HIV in the observational studies. Prior to the randomized trials, the studies that use direct observation of circumcision status uh, mm. found a 50% reduction on average. If you look at the studies that didn't, they were all over the map, largely uh, finding no effect. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess I'm gonna <laughs> say my my cynicism is mounted too low. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I for years I have been sort of beating the drum that self-reported behaviors in medicine are are are, are very unreliable. Um, like when it take, comes to medication adherence, self-reported adherence is. Oh, I take all my medication, very, Chris. Very woolly, um, Doctor Chris. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but I, I, I had sort of like assumed that like circumcision was less vulnerable. No. So wow. No. Okay. All right. Well, let's it, assume it, that they did. Can, wait, can I just say one thing? Because they let do. Me, it. Let, me, let me let me finish the logic right. here, though. <laughs> so there's so uh, assuming that they they do the things that they're supposed to do. The question is, do the does the HIV do the changes align? That, you know, in terms of these these three uh, sexual behaviors, ART use and undetectable viral load and circumcision rates. Do those Changes uh, in the population align with changes in HIV transmission. And so they, as and those two, as do. the behavior, the the viral suppression goes up, as circumcision goes up, does incidence come down? Right, of HIV? right. Now, of, of of course, it's 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 tricky because you know you can have two events that are going in in directions that you think are plausible, and they may be totally unrelated. And I think you're going to give us some beautiful examples of that in part two, um, three, I, part three, because I saw them on the printer yep. uh, yesterday or the other day. Yep. You know? Um, and so, so at least the you know there's plausibility that the two are going in the same direction. But the, and the third one is is how exactly did these changes come about? And and actually, I think here is where the the evidence becomes particularly stronger. And what I mean by that is is that like with combination prevention, you're saying like if if A is effective at reducing HIV and intervention B is effective at reducing HIV, then in theory A and B might be even better. And so within their data set, can you show, you know, evidence that A A and B are better than A alone? And actually, there's sort of a a nested natural experiment in here because of the circumcision. So women 
do not directly benefit from male circumcision. They, they may indirectly benefit because indirectly, if men do. are not infectable, they can't then transmit later, but it is a Less delayed effect. So it's a le- yes. They've modeled that as 10 years later. Yeah. Right. So they, they and, it's, it's and there's a, supposedly a delay in that. Yep. So, so if that's true, then um, whereas ART can be given, uh, you know, the benefits of ART are HIV irrespective, uh, antiretroviral therapy are irrespective of the circumcision status of men. Those are totally unlinked behaviors. If you are a, uh, a circumcised man in this population, you would we would predict that the benefits would be greatest to you because you've been circumcised and there's the community benefits of antiretroviral therapy protecting you. So there are the things that, you know, the circumcisions renders you personally less infectable, whereas the antiretrovirals render people around you less infectious. And so you, you have two wins. And conversely, you would think that uncircumcised men and women would be less, would benefit less from combination prevention because they don't have the benefit of circumcision. And that's exactly what their data show. Yep. And so I thought that that was a really powerful argument that made me think that, you know, I, I, I think this is probably true. Yep. Let, let me just get back, get sure back to the issue of, um, of reporting, um, because the, the authors actually address that. And in the st- statistical analysis section, they say, participant reported use of ART in the cohort has been validated previously by the detection of antiretroviral drugs in plasma with a specificity of 99%. And a so, sensitivity so say that of, in, 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 in normal people words. So, so Use your big boy words. What they did was that they compared what they said with what they found in the blood. Yep. And 99% of the time, when they found it in the blood, the person said that they were taking it. And 77% of the time, when they said they were taking it, it was also found in the blood. So, so, so there were more liars in one direction than the other, but still both fairly high. That's a pretty high concordance. Right, but Hold on, hold on, hold on. And then um, male circumcision coverage at a given visit was defined as the percentage of men who reported having been circumcised. Um, Participant reported circumcision rates have been validated previously from clinical records with a specificity of 100%. But they don't say what the sensitivity is. But it'd be really hard to do sensitivity in that situation. So what you're saying there, Don, aligns really, really well with the self-report adherence literature, where if if, if patients say that they are taking antiretroviral therapy, right. they might or they might not be, and it's really hard to know. But if they say they're not, they're not. It's social desirability. So smoking smoking status is reported on a, on a birth certificate. Smoking during pregnancy as reported on the child's birth certificate. If you say you're smoking during pregnancy, you probably, you probably are. There's a good chance you are. But if you say you aren't, we then don't know what that knows? means. Who knows? Exactly. We don't know what that means. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. So, uh, Chris, let's go back to this issue of, of what kind of study design this is, because the word ecologic, as far as I can tell, doesn't really come up much in this. Uh, the word cohort is used constantly throughout this study. So the question is, what kind of study is this? So a cohort study is the kind of study we've talked about many times on this on this podcast, an observational study in which we simply observe what people do. We follow individuals forward in time or occasionally we do it retrospectively, and we try to look at the relationship between the exposures and the outcomes. With an ecologic study, we don't do that. We say, let's just look at the rates of things that are going on in a population. So what proportion of the population are circumcised? What proportion of the population have HIV? And we try to correlate those two. And those kinds of designs are, are often really, really compelling, but not always correct, because two things can you know be going all in the same direction doesn't necessarily mean that one is causing the other. I found this 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 uh, study really difficult to understand what kind of analysis they're doing because they do have individual level data. They do an analysis in which they look at uh, whether those who are circumcised are less likely to become infected than those who aren't. But we already know that that is 
is true. We know that you're less likely to become infected if you are circumcised. Um, but some of the but you can't do the same analysis when it comes to uh, viral suppression because I can't look at whether or not you become infected if you take the treatment because you're already infected. I have to look at the people who aren't infected, and therefore that sort of by definition is an ecologic kind of analysis. Or if other people are being treated for HIV, am I less likely to become infected? And in those kinds of analyses, it becomes tricky to suss out causation, though I will say the evidence is really compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are certainly, and and we have plausibility, right? We know that these two interventions both work. We just don't know whether or not they work on a population level to re- reduce incidence. So if you really wanted to find out the answer to this question, you would find a, a population in which, or probably do this as clusters, you'd probably find a couple of populations You'd randomize some of them to to have the combination intervention and some of them to have none of the intervention or maybe one or only one, and you would compare them. There's no comparison in this group. The comparison is to earlier time points when there was less of these combination measures. And it's it's unlikely maybe, but let's say it's plausible that other things could be going on that explain these time trends. So say, for example, and, and I, let me be very clear, I don't believe this is what's happening, but let's say that what's actually happening is people are underreporting their behavior change over time, such that what's really happening is people are getting the message and everybody's using condoms all of a sudden and delaying their onset of sexual debut and uh, reducing the number of sex partners. And that's why HIV incidence is dropping. It just is a coincidence that at the same time, this is happening at the same time that everybody's getting treated for HIV and circumcision rates are going up. Again, I don't believe that's what's happening. I'm just trying to make the point that when you look at ecologic analyses like these, it's difficult to determine causation. I don't believe that's what's going on here um, because these two interventions have the plausibility. But I'd say I, I'm not convinced it explains all of what's going on here for the reasons that I've, I've mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. I, have uh, another, I have another theory. And um, if you look at some of the, the data that's presented in the appendix and they look at each of the 12 surveys that were that were that, that was done, um, the, the Chris, <laughs> in the appendix. Chris has no idea that there is an appendix. Yes, oh, I saw real, that. There's a really ah. good appendix. So Chris what they do is went right past that. So what they do is they look at the number of people who, when they showed up at the house, were away or um, yeah uh, for work or uh, at school. And in the beginning, there were 17, 18 percent of the people who who um, were not at home when they came when they came to the house. Whereas at the end, it's in, in the range of 30 percent. Um, and so that that sort of suggests that there might have been some what we call out migration of individuals. Definitely. And the question really is: mm-hmm. is there different? Is is there a difference in the people that out migrated than people that didn't? And if you look at one of the other pieces of data that they present in the appendix, what what what, what they did was they broke down the the incidence among of people, HIV. incidence of HIV among people who had sex with individuals outside of the cohort, i.e. perhaps those people that out-migrated. And for women, the incidence was, uh, from what I can tell, about 16-fold higher if they had sex, if they admitted to having sex um, with, no, hold on a second, it's 1, 1.46 
fold greater if they had um, admitted to having sex with people outside of the okay, community. That's a much more reasonable number. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep, no, yep. That, that, that 8.63 was, in fact, for multiple, for more than three parties. Yeah. So, so it so enhances your, your, your trust in this? Is that what you're saying? So no. no, what I'm saying is no. that, the, that the people the who out-migrated might have been more sexually active and, and therefore had a higher incidence. And maybe some of the incidents that we're not seeing uh-huh. in the people that are staying home is because the people at higher risk started having sex with people outside of the cohort. Mm-hmm. That's another explanation. I agree. Another one is that the, the, their participation rates in their survey were looked to me like about you know the high sixties uh, right. fraction participation. Now that is that's I'm, not I, super duper. No, it's not. Now I'm not clear on whether or not that that pertains to the actual HIV incidence data. Uh, in which case, you know, it may just be people didn't want to participate in the survey, but they they gave their their blood sample. We have information to be able to determine the correlation between incidence and and. But uh, but since the circumcision data is self-report, I have to believe that that's where that's coming from. Uh, you know, so uh, you know these things are hard to do, and I, I will say this: this group has done an amazing job at, at at doing the research in this place for decades. I think you, I think it's actually longer than what you had said. I think it's like seventeen years they've been there since nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine, yeah, 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 yeah. So eight, eight, seventeen, eighteen years. Um, really, uh, an impressive uh, amount of work. Lots and, of and really, really important research has come out of this. Incredible amounts of amazing work. Um, so, so to get sixty, you know, only get sixty four percent in the survey, and I, I will double check that number. But uh, is is you know, it's it's kind of what what I, what happens, but it does mean you have to sort of take this with a little bit of a a grain of salt. Again, I'm not saying that that correlates to the numbers that they have data on for the HIV, in which case it may not matter. But uh, it wasn't clear to me. Any other, uh, and I will say, by the way, this, this, if you actually go to their discussion, they actually make the point uh, in their limitations. They say, we cannot rule out the possibility that unmeasured secular trends or other potential confounders explains the declines in incidence of HIV infection. So in other words, they can't, you know, I mean, one thing we know about Uganda is the HIV incidence rates were dropping uh, well before HIV treatment came along. Now, they they do appear to have leveled out at the time that that this study is, is period is, is going for. So I'm not trying to say that that explains what's going on here. But it is something when you're doing this kind of study, you have to pay attention to other things that could be going on when you don't have a, a comparison group. Yep, right on. I agree. All right, um, but overall, you know, I'm. I'm but overall, a really compelling piece I think of evidence. I'm, I'm inclined uh, to believe this, and it it'll 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 all sort of hangs. And I, I think you're gonna you're gonna give us some. And and, um, and just you're gonna do the wacky wild, wacky weirds. Yes. Please. Okay. Uh, One of the other things that I think is is notable, I, I can't find it actually the the specific um, information, but. Um, a pe- they, they allude to the fact that modelers have indicated that we'll have to get the incidence down to 0.1 person years if we low. want to eliminate the infection. And this is as good a shot as you're going to get with the current tools. So I think it, it really underscores- And, and with, a, with a population that is so uh, right. under surveillance. Right. And they only got to- So this, under, this, underscores, this underscores the need really to continue to do research and to develop even a partially efficacious HIV vaccine. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be clarified, they, they, to, you have to get to 0.1 per 100. They got to one, I believe. Point, point 0.6, I think it was. Oh, sorry, sorry, the yeah, sorry, they yeah. started at one. They yeah. got to point 0.6. You got to get to point 0.1 right. to really think about the elimination. You- <laughs> yeah, you did. But, but, but it, it, right. it, it, it's, it's going to be said twice. It's an important actually, point. Wait, but we're so, not there. In other words, we're not I, there. Can I just make a point about the incidence dropping to point 0.6? No? Yeah. All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. 
<laughs> you got time. You got to get it below yeah. 0.1. Yeah, but it's, it's sobering, right? Okay. I mean, that's the point, that the best yeah, we have to really, offer... Yeah, really, hard to do. Is, I mean, it's super hard to do. It's super logistically intense. Um, it's only partially effective, and it's not enough. Okay. But we've saved lots of lives. But we've saved lots, lots of lives. lives. It's, and it's really impressive. But we're not so going to treat our ways out of this epidemic, is what this data say. It's, it says it's going to be really hard to do. And in fact, there have been other trials that have actually gone about this in a, a trial-rated format, test and treat studies, where we, we try and take everyone who, who we test for HIV infection, who test positive, and put them on a treatment. And, and some, some have been in, shown some promise, and some have actually shown no some benefit. really good work out of South Africa on really? that, from, from what I understand. <laughs> really good yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Those guys are heroes. Uh, can I? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, can I uh, just end... By making the point, though, that I, I, much as there is plausibility in this, it's also not clear to me that that we know exactly what's going on. And I think the way that, to me, that it was very clear was I started noticing a, a, a pattern when I was reading this study, which is there was a one particular word that seemed to keep reappearing, reappearing more than I would have expected. And the word was probably. <laughs> they, they, they don't make a lot of sta- strong statements here. They say probably, which actually... Probably more of our studies should say this, but 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 the word probably featured eight times in this you count in this it. study. You want to know how many times it's appeared in all of the previous thirteen studies we've looked at? You actually sat down and counted that word. In every I did a search. You I didn't get, actually. You got to get out more. Man. What do you think it is? <laughs> I I've got nothing going on on a Saturday night. Three, seven, oh, really, seven times in the previous thirteen studies. Oh, total. Eight times in this current study, which I, I think, again, points to the fact that they are making the statement that we, you know, they don't know exactly what's going on. This is ecologic data, and we should be cautious, and I think it's appropriate. I that think sounds they, probably significant. I so, think it's probably the right way to go. Just to sort of segue off of our, of our, our the, the issue about media bias and yep. media reporting. So in your, in, when you were looking at the, at the, the media blurbs about this, did, did you, I mean, because what, what you're saying is that they were particularly conservative cautious. and cautious yep. and, and appropriately cautious in this. Did that, did that come through in the stories? Did, did you notice that? Okay, Care so forwards? now you want me to pretend that I read past the headlines? <laughs> I, I cannot answer that question. I pulled the headlines. All right, well, let's, let's take a peek afterwards we and will, we get back we to it. We will do that. Okay, so let's, let's, let's move on and to, to move into our second segment, we're going to get into this idea of the difference between efficacy and effectiveness studies, uh, which are two different ways of, of, of measuring uh, how good a particular intervention is at whatever it is we say that it's, it's going to do. So get us into this, Don. Can you, can you explain to us what the difference is between an, an efficacy and an effectiveness study? And tell us whether you think that this particular study that we just looked at is looking at efficacy or effectiveness. So an efficacy study is a study that is um, where, you're, where you have an intervention and you're looking for um, some outcome from that intervention and you're doing it in a very controlled way and you're, you're um, uh, controlling all of the possible variables under h- highly rigorous scientific conditions. And as much as you can. As, as much as you can. And you find an effect. And then the next step is to take that, the, that same intervention and so, sort of apply it to the real world. And applying it to the real world, or I think some people call them pragmatic trials, are, um, are, are the next step to show that, in fact, in the real world, outside of the, uh, the very uh, you know, constrained circumstances of a, of a clinical trial, you can show that, in fact, it can work. And that would be an effectiveness study. 
And so which one, which one would you say this is? I think is? this I mean, is sort not... of a quasi-effectiveness study because it's not, it's, as we were describing before, it's not really reflective of kind of the untarnished real world or the tarnished real world. It's, 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 a, it's a, com- a community of people that have been studied intensively for the last 18, 17, 18 years. And so it's, 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 it's got limited generalizability in that regard, but it also is, um, it, it really is looking at the effect of these sort of almost population-based interventions. So this is a weird hybrid in yeah. my mind. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a little unfair I mean, for me to even ask the question in the sense that typically when we're talking about efficacy and effectiveness, we're really talking about randomized trials um, where, the, where, the, where we think about this more. Um, but as you say, we're getting at the difference between real-world conditions uh, and the control conditions. So why, I mean, why would we ever even want to do uh, uh, efficacy studies? Why would we ever want to do these studies that don't actually tell us about what's going on under in the real world? What's the what's the point? Well, I mean, you an effectiveness study. If, if you're going into the real world, it sort of implies that the the medical community is beyond has gone beyond asking whether this thing works, and now they're trying to make it work in the real world. Um, and those studies tend to be very very large, and they have already sort of permeated into 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 clinical care. What we don't want to have happen is that we introduce interventions that don't work and then permutate, and we only learn that they have no eff- they they don't work in an effectiveness study. We would like to know that the intervention itself in an ideal setting has some potential benefit. Now the question is, can you make that work outside of a sort of a, an experimental setting? And I agree. And I, I, I just to sort of clarify what you're saying there, I think we want to be very careful to uh, not do an effectiveness study, which is effectiveness meaning we're doing this in the real world conditions for an intervention that might actually be effective. It might actually, or efficacious, I should say, uh, but we don't learn that it's efficacious because the conditions under which we use the intervention aren't right. And so we want to know first, under idealized conditions, can it work? Mm-hmm. And then we want to move to the situation where, okay, is it going to work in practice? And I think this is part of the problems that, that we run into with, with randomized trials is the results are often you know, show benefit, let's say, of some, some new drug, but the population that's been under study has been really coached very hard to continue to take the drugs despite any side effects that they might have. Uh, we don't lose anyone from the study uh, because we really do an intense job in following them up. We, we, uh, we provide them with some incentives and some compensation for their time, for being in the study and for, for uh, doing. And the people who volunteer for these studies are often uh, healthier than the average person who, who wants to be in a study. Or in some cases, you can make the argument they're probably even sicker than the average person because they're, they're really uh, clinical trial is really their only left option left. So um, we don't always know, based on the results of, of efficacy studies, whether or not these things are going to work, and we want to test them out under under both conditions. Right. I mean, you know, you can sort of tick off the list of things that, that are different in the real world from, you know, the context of a, a closely monitored clinical trial. Uh, you know, you, you in a clinical trial, you know, of any drug, you're going to have you know, some team of study nurses or assistants who contact the patients on a regular day basis and make sure they're taking the drug. And in the real world, patients don't take the drug. You know, they, the, their adherence much lower than in efficacy studies. Uh, you know, in, in a clinical trial, you've got a procedure like, like some new ultrasound 
test for diagnosing liver cancers. And it's very tricky to do. And you have to train the radiologist really hard to do that. And then they take special courses and they have quality control and people are making sure that they're right. And there's a gold standard and there's an adjudication process, blah, blah, blah. And in the real world, none of that exists. And so the radiologists are just not as good as identifying liver cancers using this new ultrasound test because they don't have all of those supports. And so it doesn't work as well, you know, and you just keep going down the list of the things that, that sort of start to sort of become fuzzier, you know, and patients are assigned to take this medication and not that medication. And in the real world, they They change their minds and go and take the other one or they take both or they take neither and they don't tell you and you have no idea what's going on. And so it all starts to tend to, you know, migrate towards the null because, you know, the, the exposed, and the unexposed groups start to look disturbingly similar in terms of how many people are actually taking the drug. Or, or the you compliance know? is very different from what you see in the trial. Exactly. Or the, the side effect profile is, is starts to become more obvious. Um, and the logistic limitations of these interventions become more more apparent because you know it turns out that you know here's this this fantastic drug that comes in liquid form and can't be exposed to ultraviolet light and has to be stored at four degrees, you know, and you know has all these toxicities you have to monitor for it, and then you know you're going to try to ship that. You know, to a rural setting in Zambia, and it yep. turns out that by the time it gets there, it's been cooked in the four by four. None of it works. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's this is why oxytocin is so hard to to implement in low and middle income countries, even though it is a, a life saving drug, highly for, efficacious, highly efficacious for postpartum effective. hemorrhage, but very difficult to get an oxytocin drip into a rural village in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, that then we pay we we put too much? value in efficacy studies that that when we find some new thing is is beneficial that people you know particularly uh media gets very excited about these things we as researchers get excited about these things when they have yet to be demonstrated to actually work under real world conditions and maybe we are overhyping the benefits of the particular interventions that we are looking at no I, well no i don't think so i think i think we need to be a little sanguine about it but um you Define know sanguine for we those have to of be, us we have who to be, failed the GREs. we have to be we have to be um, a little cautious i didn't little, fail i just didn't do that well <laughs> in the english part um, because when we are able to establish that an intervention is efficacious it's it's a new finding, and it's a new tool, yeah. potentially, and it's it's something that really moves us forward. And whether it's going to be borne out in the real world or not remains to be seen. But you know, I think I think I think the excitement is warranted, but yeah. but needs to be tempered some. Yeah, I mean, I, and I would agree with you. And I would just say, I think I think we need some caution because when these new treatments become come out, they often look phenomenal, and that gets people really excited and lots of hope and. You know, under we, we we should expect that in many cases the the actual benefits under actualized conditions are not going to be as great as we think they are, and so you know some caution is warranted. Yep. The word probably should probably be used <laughs> at least eight often. times. <laughs> at least eight times. I think you're probably right, man. I think I probably am. All I, right. I think that's a probabilistic statement. Though, that isn't is. It? <laughs> All right. Well done. Okay. So let's uh, let's move on to our our last segment. Our our. Amazing and amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that uh, make us enjoy our jobs even more. Look at the weird, wacky things that go on, as well as some of the things that inspire us, which is why it's called Amazing and Amusing, Don, in case you weren't listening. It's not (laughs) wacky science. You know I never listen, Matt. I know that's true. And I'm going to go first today because mine actually relates to uh, the topic that we were talking about uh, during the first study, which is this issue of... uh, Ecologic studies not always being able to tease out the difference between correlation and causation. So as we said with the Uganda study, 
We have this study which shows really nicely that over time, as the rates of male circumcision go up and the rates of viral suppression go up, the rates of HIV incidents come down. And that's, you know, makes sense to us and it's intuitive and therefore we are, we want to believe that's true. But we have to be careful because we know there are cases where correlation that look really good aren't exactly causation. Spurious. They are Spurious causation, spurious correlation, excuse me. So there is a, it was originally, a, I found it on a website, but it has now been made into a book by a guy named uh, Tyler Vigen. Vigen? I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, Vegan. <laughs> whatever it is. He's got a very correct So this is, a, uh, this is a, a plug for his book, which apparently you can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other sites. Which just looked at a whole bunch of what we presume are, uh, which look to be incredible correlations over time, which presumably we don't actually believe are in fact causation. So let me give you an example. So, so this is a situation where if we had a website, we could post these figures on the website because the figures are really impressive. I think we would link to it. I don't think we're able, but we, we have a website. Do we? We do have a website. That's fun. www.pophealthyx.org. Oh, really? Have you not heard me say that? A thousand I, um, times? I had, but I didn't think, I thought it was static. I didn't think we could actually post yeah. things on so there. So what we've got here is... The, the frequency of you making that statement does not correlate with Don's <laughs> interpretation <laughs> of the... Disagree. <laughs> disagree. <laughs> the inverse correlation does not equal causation. No, no, no. Disagree. Perfectly invert, inversely correlated. The more times I say it, the, the less, less likely he is, is to remember it. Because he's stubborn. <laughs> Okay, so what these show is graphs over time, so from 2000, let's say, to 2009, and they just plot the yearly values of certain things, and the correlations, just to look at them, you can tell are amazing. I mean, he does actually calculate the actual R-squared values, and they're in the you know 95 for range. Um, so, for example, really good correlation, number of people who drowned by falling into a pool correlates incredibly well with the number of films Nicolas Cage appeared in. <laughs> Certainly must be must be causal. Uh, murders by steam, hot vapors, or hot objects correlates incredibly well with the age of Miss America. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, the number of people killed by venomous spiders correlates incredibly well with the number of letters in the winning word of the script's national spelling bee. No. Incredibly, incredibly correlated. Let me see that. Yeah, really <sighs> impressive stuff. So... My my point Those there spiders, being, they, go, are, they are so there's bad. Gotta, there's got to be a connection. I've been saying this there for years. To be a what's the what's the uh, yeah? Chris Chris is <laughs> no, national, totally national believe spelling bee, arachnophobic. Is national spelling bee, you know, from the insect kingdom bee. and the venomous spiders, insect kingdom. Ah, there you go. Don has figured it out. Anyway, if you go onto to his website, Tyler TylerVigan.com, or you buy his book, uh, there is so many more of these. And they are uh, fantastic to uh, to read through. Chris, you wanna you wanna tell us what you got? Yeah, yeah. So um, in in my um, my search today, I found another uh, article that was a little bit of a downer, actually. Oh, um, yeah. That's I not apologize. what we do on this segment. I know, but interesting. It, it it this is another article from from Plus One, which I just want to plug, put a plug for. I really think it's a great journal. Um, um, yeah. So I'm just going to say, I think PLOS One is a terrific journal. Uh, it's the Public Library of Science. Public Library of Science. Uh, the articles- yeah, at some point we should talk about them as a model because they have this really interesting uh, philosophy where they, they do not uh, assess – the importance of the studies that they publish, only the quality. Yeah, I, I, that's why I, I think that they're 
I think they get, you know, many stars for me. Mm. Well, this article is called Facebook Use Predicts Declines in Subjective Well-Being in Young oh, Adults. Oh, boy. Um, and it's by Cross and colleagues at the University of um, uh, Michigan in the psychology department. And it, they did a, a very interesting uh, observational study um, where they built a... Um, they assembled a little patient cohort. They followed them for 14 days. And every day they sent them five different text messages at random times. And the text message included a, a hyperlink to an online quiz. And on the online quiz, they were to, at that moment, report their recent use of Facebook um, as a proxy for digital social interaction, their um, actual social interactions with real, like, walking, talking people, like, you know, as non-digital, like the old school form of digital of, of human interaction. Um, Can you just text me the answer to this one? I, I, I don't actually want to listen. And then they also measured their affect in two different ways. One was like, how did they feel at the particular moment of time? And then the other one was how did they rate their sort of general quality of life? They also looked at their degree of loneliness and their degree of, ang of sort of like worry, like anxiety about the future. Oh boy! And and they found uh, and and they and they did a, a very sophisticated. Uh, well, I wouldn't say very, but they they, they did a, a a rigorous statistical analysis where they they did lagged analyses, meaning does. Facebook behavior on Monday predict the way you're going to feel on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So you're, they're always sort of like looking forward and trying to relate the recent behavior with the current state, okay? Um, which I thought was a was a, a nice way of approaching the problem. And and basically what they they found was a little bit sad, which was that people, you know, that the more that that individuals use Facebook, the sadder they felt, the lonelier they felt, the more they um, sort of described their mood as being low, and the more that they felt sort of discouraged in their life. And these these um, these effects were 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 rather strong and, and statistically very very um, tight. Uh, so it was it was it was compelling, and then they did a whole series of analyses to sort of like probe the alternative hypothesis. Like, what else could this mean? Like, so you know, one hypothesis is that maybe it's not Facebook interactions that are bad. Maybe it's all human interactions that are bad. And <laughs> just being with people makes you feel bad. And Somehow I could say down. that's possibly I true. I can't understand why you got, got cut down or cynical by based right. on this paper. Anyway, so anyway, so they looked at the social, the direct social interactions, and they found that actually they had the opposite effect. That the more you talked to people and interacted with people, the better you felt. Yeah, I believe that. You know, and so then they said, well, maybe it's just that lonely people use Facebook, and it's sort of like a you uh -huh. know, descriptor reverse causation. reverse causation. So Chris's favorite. So we they and they looked and said, indeed, lonely people do use more Facebook. So that was true. But then they put the loneliness into their statistical model, and after adjusting for lonely, the loneliness of the person, they still found that the increased use of Facebook... The lonely people got lonelier. They got lonelier and sadder mm. the more that they used Facebook. So even after adjusting for that sort of baseline characteristic, they still found that this was... was um, wow. Was well, you could, well, could you so, make the argument that, that sort of Facebook constitutes an idealosphere? I... Where where people post yeah. pictures of right. things that yeah. ways in which their lives are just wonderful and the kids are happy and, it's very and the discouraging animals are happy and and I, I would I would I, I would think that many of those people's lives when you really scrutinize them are far less ideal than they appear on Facebook. I must be an outlier because I I look at Facebook and I I, I think boy. My life is great. No, I'm, so you I'm, must have really. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't actually use Facebook very much at all. Or, I'm just or, kidding. Or just Twitter. Kidding. To me, it's like Twitter. That, no, Twitter's, Twitter's different. Twi for me, Twitter is the bickerosphere. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like all people do is they just bicker back and forth. Yeah. So they, they ended their paper with a with a really nice quote, which I'm just going to read here, and it says. Um, 
You know, on the surface, Facebook provides an invaluable resource for fulfilling such needs, and they're talking about human interaction, by allowing people to instantly connect. Rather than enhancing well-being, as frequent interactions with supportive offline social networks powerfully do, the current findings demonstrate that interacting with Facebook may predict the opposite result for young adults. It may undermine it. Bummer. Yeah. So I thought a cautionary tale. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I have to say it, it, it does kind of jibe with, with my own experience with it, that it, it tends to leave me feeling I predict pretty you, dry. I predict Chris does not delete his Facebook account. You want to take that bet? No, I'm not going to take right. that bet. All right. Off to you, Don. So on yeah, that, on thank that, goodness I didn't end with Chris. God, on that happy, happy that's note. A bummer. Wacky yeah, and it's, weird. It's like the Prozac section. What, I, what, I've, got, what I've got is um, we, we discuss science. We discuss papers. We discuss methodology and background and analysis. We never discuss the acknowledgments no, we don't. section we really of papers. Don't. And, and I didn't realize that, but there, there really is just a whole world within the acknowledgement sections of scientific papers. And so um, I'm referring to a paper that, uh, um, an article that appeared in Slate in 2013 by Meredith Carpenter and Lillian Leyland, entitled The Snarky Clever Comments Hidden in the Acknowledgements oh, of yes. Academic Papers. <laughs> and they come in several categories. Um, so there's- So these, um, are, these are actual scientific so these papers- are, where somebody put something... These are quotes from within the acknowledgement sections, Got which it. is written in like four font at the bottom of the title page <laughs> yep, yep. of scientific papers. Um, so the first category is sticking it to the man. <laughs> so, so I'll quote the, the section in this acknowledgement. It's BJH would also like to thank the U.S. Immigration Service under the Bush administration, whose visa background security check forced her to spend two months following an international conference in a third country, free of routine obligations. It was during this time that the hypothesis presented herein was initially conjectured. Well done. And then second one is, uh, I thank the National Science Foundation for regularly rejecting my honest grant applications for work on real organisms, <laughs> thus forcing, forcing me into theoretical work. <laughs> then the next, the next, uh, uh, oh, um, another one is um, the order of authorship was determined by proximity to tenure decisions. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the order, uh, the order of authorship was determined from a 25-game croquet series held at Imperial <laughs> College Field Station during summer 1973. <laughs> uh, and then thanking nature is another section. Uh, and we're quite familiar with this. Um, the, the authors wish to acknowledge Snowpocalypse 2010 yeah. oh, for yeah. making the long-awaited completion of this paper possible. So that was a, a, a period of time in Boston when there was snow unremittingly for six weeks or something. 2014 or so, where, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't drive right. in the city of Boston. All two-lane roads became one-lane roads. The snow pile in the center of Boston finally melted in July. You can go on and you could, there's a time lapse of it that is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, there was something else. Yeah, that's when, that, that's when they had a pool for when the last little bit yeah. of snow yeah. would finally disappear. It was yep. like July 30, and the July other thing 30th is everybody, or something. Everybody, everybody in the city of Boston was miserable. I know. You get into an elevator and everyone, you, I mean, 
fistfights would break out. So it was three, I, I like, a three-hour commute to get home. Yeah. Oh, the it, thing it was that awful. I remember oh was, was the mayor announcing, requesting that people who lived in the city stop jumping out of the second-floor windows, yep. Yep. spread yep. eagle onto the, onto the snow they also, below. That, that was the year they, they put a, um, a moratorium, moratorium, is that the right word, yeah. on the on the ban, on the, uh, put people would uh, shovel, you know, people in the Boston shovel out their parking spot, and then they put furniture <laughs> in, in right. the space to, to right. own it. right. For you know, and they uh, and you the dare city, not move that furniture well, if it's city, not your space. Correct, but the city will come along and take that. But they, the city said at that point, we are going to allow it. That was uh, yeah. anyway. Continue. All right. So um, the last section are unacknowledgments. <laughs> um, so the first one is: uh, We would like to thank Carla Miller for sleeping late one morning, leaving <laughs> Tim and Steve a bit bored, and Saad uh, for making the brains look pretty. Nice. And then the last one is, uh, we do not gratefully thank Tim Apurshak for his useless and very mean <laughs> comments. Well done. <laughs> I wish I had the guts to do that. I have to say, uh, more and more journals now require you to get permission from people to acknowledge them, oh, which God. is going to ruin that because who's going to want to taking all the fun out of yeah, life? Yeah, how are you going to get a, a a signature from Snowpocalypse? Boy. Regulations. Yes. <laughs> all right. So you've made it to the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episodes, or you want to suggest a study or a topic that we should take on, tweet us at at pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at at profmatfox, or Chris at at id.gill, or Don at at dthea1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. Uh, we'd like to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>